Um, let's pray as we prepare to get into God's Word. Father, we thank you today for being able to worship you and honor you, especially in this nation, that we may still worship you and honor you publicly and openly. We're aware that this morning or today that there are many, many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are worshiping you, but they don't have the freedom, so they have to do it literally under the threat of their lives, Father. And we pray for them, that you would strengthen them today, that they would be bold in their worship of you, bold in the declaring of the word, bold in their witness for you. And Father, we ask you to strengthen us and encourage us today. Help us to get things in line with you for to prepare for what it is that you want to do in our lives in this place, in this region, and in this nation, and in the world that you're doing today. And we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, we trust you to now to take the words of this page and what is in my heart and bring forth only what you want to say and only with the Spirit that you want to minister it. I, as best I know how, lay myself aside. And Father, I ask you by the anointing of your Spirit that you would speak and deposit into our hearts. Let us see something that maybe we've never seen before or let us be reminded of things we've seen before. Touch our hearts today, Holy Spirit with the power of your word, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since I've ministered the word on Sunday, and uh, as you can tell by the graphic on the, on the screen behind us, we're in a series called First Things First, and we started that at the first of the year, but because of interruptions we've had, which have been good ones, uh, we're just kind of slowed down a little bit, and I wanna, I've got a couple of more first things to talk to us about, uh, and today we're going to get into some of the practicalities of it. But just to remind you, uh, let's, go to, uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 20. We, this is where we, this is kind of our signature series. What we're talking about is that God is a God of order. God is a God of order, which means not only is He orderly, but He does things in order and He works with us by order. And, and God, has a, God has ordained an order of priorities of certain things for His people. And if we follow His priorities, His blessings flow. One of the most beloved psalms dealing with protection and blessing is Psalm 91. It says, it says that no plague shall come near your dwelling. I mean, think of the plagues that are in the world right now. Cancer is a plague. It's devouring people's lives, shortening their lives. All kinds of things we can recognize as plagues today, not just the black plague, but plagues out in the world today, destroying people's lives. And, and, and Psalm 91 says that, that it shall not come near your dwelling. And I confess that over this dwelling, this house, this body that my spirit lives in. It shall not come near this dwelling. And it says no matter what happens to other people, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, it's not coming near me. It talks about God's protection, God's healing, God's blessing. And, and he says near the end, and, and, and if you're in trouble, I will be with you in trouble and deliver you and satisfy you with long life. Say, how much is long life until you're satisfied? <laughs> Amazing promises. Now my question to you, is that the truth? Four of you think so. Five, six, okay. But I think that response is exactly reflective of what we believe. We read that psalm, we're comforted by that psalm, but we don't believe it. Oh, we believe it in church, we say yes, amen, but we walk out the doors of this church into the real world and we leave 
those promises behind because we don't expect that in our life because we live in a world that, and really even a church world that doesn't expect God to protect us and provide for us. And yet it's the Word of God. But one of the reasons I think people don't experience the provision of that is we forget the initial verses. These promises apply to he who dwells, not visits on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, if we're real, he's really blessed. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide, live under the shadow, the protection of the Almighty. It's those that dwell up under the secret place And what I believe it means is those who dwell under the authority of God's word, what he has commanded, his order, his provision. Part of this time during this fasting, I was uh, reading through, I just felt led to read through some of the revivals of the Old Testament. And what triggered each of them that I read was somewhere along the line, they discovered the law again. They discovered God's word again. They were living without, generations living without the knowledge of what God required, and as a result, they were living basically like the the pagans did, and they were performing the pagans' rites, and they were living under a curse. Deuteronomy 28 sets forth a blessing and a curse. The blessing is if you obey the commandments, the curse is if you disobey it, and I don't believe God just gets mad and throws a curse down. If if, If it's raining out there, the blessing is an umbrella if you're smart enough to open it. And if you're smart enough to open it, stand under it, and then the umbrella will protect you. So God's provision will protect you if you stand under it. And you can't stand under His protection if you don't stand under His commandments, because they're combined. And starting in verse 16, there's the curse, which is what happens if you stand out from underneath God's requirements. So many people that love God with all their heart are not experiencing His blessing, His his healing, His provision, because they're living their life contrary to the order that God has ordained. And so we began to say, well, what is this order? And we looked, you can put it up now. Really simple. God's announcing this order to His people once they've come out 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 of Egypt. And the Lord spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3. This is it. Verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the one that's delivered you. I'm the one that saves you. I'm the one that's providing for you. And here's my requirement. You shall have no other gods before me. And I'm not going to go back over all of that. We've looked at that before. And then what we looked at last time is because you can take these laws, which is what Israel did, and you, bec- you can become legalistic with them. So you live your life on a bunch of do's and don'ts. God's going to love me and be happy if I do all these things, and He'll be mad at me if I don't, and He'll be ha- love me and happy if I don't do these things, and I do the other things I'm supposed to. So our standing with God then is based on what we do and what we don't do. You can tell when you're in those churches because they've got a whole, they've got a lot more don'ts than they do do's. Do, do's, yeah. They've got a lot more. Why? Because in our fallen nature, in our flesh, we want to do all kinds of things we can't. So if you've got to come up with a list of what you can't do, Every time somebody does something wrong, you've got to add to it. And so, 
this is the, but what, what's really behind this we learned last time is it's a matter of the heart. God wants our heart. God created man to have a relationship with him, not to be subject to a bunch of rules. God created man to have a love relationship with him so that they would love and adore each other, walk in peace with each other, and God would provide everything they need. God would provide their protection, their provision. If you want to know what that's like, just look at the garden. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. That's what God created. That's what he wanted for man. And of course, man disobeyed him. They got out from underneath the protection of the umbrella. And if you read in chapter 3, that's when the curse comes, and we're still living with that curse. We'll talk more about that on Resurrection Sunday, because there's something God showed me to, to, that, that, will, that will set you free. And uh, so, so that's what's happened. But it's a matter of the heart. It's important as we go through the things we're going to talk about today because we're going to get into some touchy subjects today. Well, let me put it this way. We're going to begin to get into some touchy subjects today. All right? Because what we're going to talk about today is how does this apply in my life? It's one thing to sit in church and say, yeah, I love the Lord my God with all my heart. I have no other gods before Him. I would never want to put another God before Him. But the real test of where our heart is is how we live our lives especially in areas that are dear to our heart, areas that, that have entrance into our heart. It's, it's not wrong to care about other things. What's wrong is when those things that we care about, we care about more than God. That's what that commandment's about. That's what that commandment's about. So what we're going to begin to look at today is we're going to be look, to look at um, how, how does this issue of putting God first... How does this issue apply in my life? So the title of this message is Where the Rubber Hits the Road. You understand what that expression is? You can go into, the, in, into, into you know, a tire shop and you can pick out a beautiful new tire and it looks great, you know, and they can tell you all the things about the tire, but the real test of that tire is when they put it on the car, lower the car down and you drive out and that rubber of that tire or whatever it's made of nowadays, when it hits the road, that's what you're going to find out. I remember when I was in college and I was going to take my law, law entrance boards and... Um, I had, had to go about an hour away, and I was upstate New York, and it had snowed that morning, and I didn't have my car, so I borrowed a good friend of mine's car, and I get in this car, and it's, it, it, had, it had a big, powerful engine, and I'm driving down the New York Thruway ready to get off at the, at the first Syracuse exit because I was taking it at Syracuse University, and it's a slight incline down, and I downshifted and put my brakes on, and the next thing I know, the rear end of the car is going in front of, is, is leading me we begin to spin because what my good friend forgot to tell me is the tires were bald. So the rubber wasn't hitting the road. (laughs) So that expression means, all right, we have concepts and ideas, but the real test is what kind of grip, what what kind of traction do those tires have Because that's the purpose of the tire. You can only go to the extent it has traction. And you can only have control over that vehicle to the extent that those tires have traction. And so it's how the rubber hits the road that determines what's controlling your car and what's not. So we're going to begin to look at two areas of your life that, that are by nature very dear to us. And there could be many other areas we'll look at, but if we can just get these areas straight, the others will fall in line. 
The one we're going to look at today, and this is requires, you've really got to listen carefully. We're going to talk about our family. We're going to talk about the place that your family has in your life. Now, I'm assuming everybody here is or has been part of some kind of family. I'm assuming that because to be part of a family, you have to have parents. And whether they're alive or not, if you're here today, I'm assuming you had parents. Many of you are parents. So you have children. Some of you, as I am, I've got children, grandchildren, and I've also got a parent still alive. So my family extends out. So we're going to talk about how this principle of putting God first applies when it comes to our family. And we have an elementary school here. And I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you that you can have the sweetest, dearest people, Christians for years, love the Lord, fill with the Spirit, fill with the fruit of the Spirit, and you mess with their kids. You, you, you say something about their kids, which even though you may have been a teacher for 25 years, and you tell them little Johnny may not be quite the sweet darling that you think he is, and it's amazing what comes out of these born-again, spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Bible-toting, love-Jesus parents. Because you messed with my kids. You touched something dear to my heart. And the question is, did it touch something dearer to your heart than God? So this is a touchy subject. So I want you to hear this. First of all, if you leave here condemned, you missed it. Because all of us need to check our hearts when it comes to these kind of areas. And by the way, if you don't have any children and your, or parents around and you're thinking, Whew, I got it made today, next time we're going to talk about money. Whoa. One of those two will get you. <laughs> and as you know, you can tell what God's been dealing with the pastor about because that's what he deals with you about. So, these are issues, and the reason I want to talk about these issues are these are issues that regardless of how much we shout and jump in church, these are the issues that have a place in our heart and should have a place in our heart that's dear to us. But it can't be greater than God's position in our lives. Because if it is, the family gets out of balance. Remember I've taught you that if God's not in His rightful place in your heart and in your life, everything else is out of order. If the foundation of your house is not right, your building's weak. If the foundation isn't strong, it doesn't matter what kind of building you build on top of it, if the foundation's wrong, the building's defective and it is in danger. Jesus taught that principle in Matthew chapter 7. The man that built a house on a rock and the man that built a house on, the, on sand. Same house, same construction, same design, same contractors. One of them stood and the other fell. The difference was the foundation on which it's built. And if God is not the, has the first place in your heart, everything you're building in your life is vulnerable and shaky. Secondly, God's blessings can only flow freely and fully when things are in the proper order. And, the beginning, and if you get this, the beginning right, if you get God in the right place, you'll know where everything else belongs. So that's why we don't have to go into the rest of it. All right. 
So, we're talking about cares here. Things that matter to our heart. Don't turn there, but, but in Matthew chapter 13, there's this wonderful story Jesus tells His disciples, and it's called the parable of the sower. And He, he has this statement in there. He said, if you can understand this story, you'll understand everything else that I'm teaching. And it's all about the Word being planted in our hearts. And He uses the example of a farmer sowing seed into the ground. So the Word is the seed. And the difference, and the seed's the same. The same seed's thrown, sown out on the road. The same seed, seed blah, is sown uh, on the wayside beside the road. The same seed is thrown, sown. The same seed is planted in the soil that has weeds in it. And the same seed is planted in the good soil. The soil in that parable represents the condition of our heart. So the condition of our heart determines what God's Word can do in our lives. Not the Word, the condition of our heart. And that's why Jesus said, if you can understand this parable, you can receive everything else, because He's teaching by way of Word. I mention that because in there, He talks about one particular soil that allows the Word to grow, allows God to work in their lives, but it's not fully fruitful. The Word, the life of God is choked. It produces something, but it doesn't produce the fullness of what God intended that to do. And that refers not just to the Word, but the blessing and everything God wants to do in our life. And Jesus says, He calls that soil has in it thorns and thistles and weeds. And then when Jesus comes to interpret it, he says what that represents is the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of, other, of riches, we'll talk about that next time, and the lust for other things. But the one I want to talk about today is the cares of this life. Satan is your enemy. He comes to try to steal the word. That's what Jesus said at the beginning of that parable. Because he knows what the word will do, and you're trying to steal it right now as it's being sown. He's trying to distract some of you so it never gets in. Some of you that it's getting into, he's trying to argue with and, and get you to feel condemned so you don't receive it. That's why I made this statement I made a few minutes ago. But the word, but, but the most powerful method he uses with Christians is the cares of this life cares of this life. Now Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 6. When he talks about, and we, this is when we were talking about that this is a matter of the heart, we go back because Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God. You can't love God with all your heart and love the world system with all your heart. You can't do both. And then, he, then it seems like he changes subjects and he talks about, therefore do not, be, do not worry. And he talks about worrying about needs in this life, what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat. And he says, don't you know that your heavenly Father knows that you need all those things? See, when God tells, when we're talking to us today about the cares of your life, and we're going to talk about family today, he's not saying ignore your family. He's not saying, you know, leave your family, go sit in a monastery somewhere. He's not saying spend all the time in church and never spend any time in your family. He's not talking about that. He's talking about what's first in our heart. And what he says there, because he's talking there specifically about our natural needs, he says, 
the, and the, the culmination of that teaching is in, in verse 33. Therefore, seek first the kingdom of God. Put God first in your heart and your life, and all these things will be added unto you. God's not trying to deprive of us of things. God knows. In fact, earlier it says, don't you know God knows what you need before you ask? God's a generous God. Not just with your physical needs, but he's, He wants to bless your family. And nobody can bless your family like God. He wants to bless your health. He wants to bless your business, if that's what God's called. He wants to bless your life. No one can bless your life like God can. But what we're tempted to do, which is what Adam did, we're tempted to take the control of our life into our hands because we have more confidence in what we can do with it than what God can do with it if we put it in His hands. Because we don't trust Him as much as we trust ourselves. And that's what John talks about, about the pride of life. I'm confident in what I can do. I'm more confident in what I can do than what God can do. And the proof of it is, what do we put into His hands? What do we entrust to Him? And let go of the strings. So the principle here is, God doesn't want your family to suffer. God, God wants to bless your family. God wants your children and your grandchildren blessed from generation to generation. That's what God wants to do. But when we don't put Him first, He can't. He'll do what He can. He'll do what you'll allow Him. But the fullness of His blessing, the fullness of what He wants to do, He cannot do if He's not in the position to do it. If He's not in the position to do it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, all that you need, will be added unto you. But seek me first. Seek me first. Seek me first. All right, let's talk about, that's what we're going to talk about, the cares of this life. A care is not something you shouldn't care about. Now, there are things we shouldn't worry about, but your family, your children, your parents, your spouse... Those are things you should care about. Because we're going to look at some startling scriptures, and if you don't understand the balance of this, and this is where people go, they tend to go to one extreme or the other. And we need to have God's balance on this. The cares of this world are good things that God has entrusted to you that try to take a place in our heart that's above Him. I'm going to say that again. These are good things that God has entrusted to you and entrusted to your heart to take care of, but they want to take a place in your heart above Him. I'm going to say it again because this is a very important point to get. Because God's not saying don't care about them. God gave them to you to care for. But you've got to be careful that what you're caring for, you don't care more about then you care for Him. Everybody following me? And it's always there. So you may have gotten it right last Sunday and sometime during the week because these cares have access to you all the time. Mommy, mommy, daddy, daddy, I need this. I'm trying to get your attention. We've got our, our youngest granddaughter 
you know, she just, she just, they've just moved back up here and, and she's just so excited to be, be able to spend time with us instead of, you know, on FaceTime or, you know, once a year. And so every time we have her over or something like that, she's always jumping up saying, I, I, I want to talk, she wants to say something while we're trying to have a conversation. We have to say, you know, Ava, you get your turn, just a minute. And she's trying, she's vying for our attention because she wants our attention. And, and, and we should give her our attention but she's got to learn that there are other attentions that may be more important at that time. And that doesn't mean we don't love her. That means there's a priority here. So it's a little simple lesson that we're trying to teach her that we need to learn. But the point is, just as she jumps up and down and pulls at my coat and says, Papa, Papa, you know, like this, there are things in life that do that to you all day long. Pull at you, poke at you. And if they're not doing it from the outside... They do it from the inside. We're thinking about them. We're thinking about them. We're thinking about them. Why? Because we care about them. So the first thing we need to see is well, the things we're going to talk about today are things you should care about because God entrusted them to you to care for and to care about. But not to care more about than you care about Him. And it's easier to care more about them because they're there all the time. They're presenting their needs to you all the time. And God is not someone you can see what He needs and what He wants. And after all, we made it through yesterday without putting Him first. I can get through today without putting Him in first. But when little Johnny's jumping up and down and saying, I'm hungry or whatever, you know, or little Susie needs her diaper changed or some, some, some issue of life, then, then, you know, they're more demanding at us, so we'll put them first. And, and there are some things that need to be taken care of now. If the diaper needs to be changed, do it. Okay, oh, we've got to move along. God's idea, family is God's idea. In fact, the family was created by God before the church was. It's the foundation of our society as God created it. So it's right and it's good to care for and attend to our family and give it an extremely high priority. Ephesians 5, don't turn there, but, Jesus, but Paul, writing to the husband and wife, says in, in between verse 22 and 25, he says, Wives, respect or honor your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. So he's telling you, love each other, take care of each other. In fact, he tells husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, you're supposed to love her with a sacrificial love. That's how high she's supposed to be in your heart. But what makes family hard is the heart relationship. Husband and wives, you're one, you're joined together. Something happens to my wife, I feel it because we're one. Something's going on with me, she can feel it. It affects her because we're one. Your children are not one with you. It's a very different relationship. But they're in your heart and so you bore them. They, you, they came out of you physically and so you have a heart relationship with them. So what happens to them? You're identified with them. But the problem is when we're more identified with them than we are with God. Let me tell you something that will solve every marriage problem if you put Christ first. Because if Christ is not first in your marriage, you're trying to make your spouse your savior. And I had to find out the hard way, she was not designed to be my savior. 
She was not designed to be the source of everything I needed in life. Because as long as she was my source, she wasn't my wife. I couldn't minister to her. I needed her. And so when God becomes the source in your life, the ultimate source in your life, then you're free to love your wife. You're free, to, you're free to give a sacrificial love to her. She's free to give honor back to you even though you may not be deserving of honor because she's doing it in order to honor Christ. So we're commanded to have a love relationship with each other. In Ephesians 6, it tells children, you're to love and respect your parents and parents, you're to love and, 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 and teach and train up your children. So we're supposed to take care of it. We're supposed to love our children. We're the high priority. Not only that, in John chapter 13 and John chapter 15, Jesus commands us to love one another. I lay that as a foundation because we're about to read something that's very startling and looks very much the opposite when you read it. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 10. You need, we needed that background because otherwise you'll take this out of context. Starting in verse 34, Jesus is teaching His disciples. Do not think, I came to bring peace on earth. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. If I recall back at Christmas time, we read some scriptures that God announced peace on earth. Isn't he called the Prince of Peace? Didn't Jesus tell his disciples, My peace I give you? Wait, 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 wait. Oh, well, that's right, I forgot. The Bible contradicts itself. That's why we can't trust it. Isn't that true? Let me tell you a little secret about that. Because I struggled. I struggled with what I thought were contradictions in the Bible. And I'd resigned my law firm, moved my family halfway across the, the country, so it felt like the world, halfway across the country, in order to, because I believe God had called us into the ministry, and this was training for that. And I got out there, and I struggled for the first two months of Bible school. I mean, I was miserable. And I finally had it. I said, God, I did this. I would be bang you. What's wrong? And I went and sat down on the edge of a couch we had, and I said, God, I can't, I can't keep doing this. And see, if you, if you get to the end of something and really ask God, He'll answer you. And He gave me a very simple answer. He said, Son, because you're reading the Bible like a lawyer. And the minute He said that, I knew what I meant. I knew what He meant. Because a lawyer's trained to think what's wrong. A lawyer's trained, if he writes a document, to find out, okay, where are the holes in this? A lawyer's trained to read somebody else's document. Where are the holes in this? And that's part of the training. But He said, you don't read the Word like a legal document in, in that sense, to find out what's wrong with it, you read it by faith. He said, try this. He said, just assume it's the truth and watch what happens. I just made that slight adjustment. All of a sudden, the moment I assumed it was truth, I saw the, the, what looked like inconsistencies answered. And here's an example of that. So obviously, he's not saying, I'm call, I'm, I'm, I've come to create strife. But what does he mean? Let's take a look at what he does mean. Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I don't think that takes a lot of work sometimes. <laughs> a man's 
not with mine. Mine are great. Mine's great. Uh, a, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What's he talking about? Verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who takes up his cross and follows after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 37 again. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What he's saying is the love that you are to have for me might force you to make some decisions that will cause your family to be your enemy. Some of you here have experienced that. Some of you here came out of religious traditions that when you started coming to this cult <laughs> that they thought was a cult, as Pastor Samuel used to say, why did you leave the church? That they don't go to. Some of you, some, there are people that have come to this church and their family has literally written them out because they left their religious tradition. And it's cost them something. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. That's the most obvious kind of thing he's talking about. But there's some more subtle things. There's some, because these things come out, the rubber hits the road in the practical issues of life in the practical issues of life. I remember when our youngest children, the twin boys, who are now about to be 35, whoa, um, I remember when they got to the age of playing sports. Now, now we're going to get into it. They got to the age of playing sports, and I'll never forget the first baseball team they signed up for, and I go to this, they're excited, and the coach hands out a list of practices and games. And there are some of them on Sunday. And I had to pull our boys aside and say, you can't go. Because we put God first, and that's the day we give to Him. And they look at me, as I understand, saying, you know, but we may not make the team. We may. I said, you put God first. You put God first. And God will put you first. Then I went to the coach and said, I'm sorry, my boys love to play. They're good players. But we go to church on Sunday. I'm not telling you what to do. Obviously, you're here. But I'm telling you the choices we have to make that can be gut-wrenching choices. When that child looks at you and said, but, but Dad, I, I, I get to play on the, in, in, in the All-Star game. Dad! And you can see the excitement of the child, and your stomach's gripping because you want to do, you want to please the child. And there's nothing wrong with that unless, 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 unless I'm putting that child's, that desire to please that child above God. Now the question about this is, if I'm doing that, what am I teaching the child? 
What am I te- where am I teaching my children that God stands in our life? Well, I know God's important, but then we've got these things we've got to do, and we've got this birthday party we've got to go to, and we've got this thing we've got to do, and, and yeah, when we're not doing those things, we can go to church. There was a survey done about four or five years ago of people that call themselves regular church attenders, and I understand I'm talking to people that are here this morning, but this is just an example of what I'm talking about. And they ask them, are you a regular church attender? And of the people that said, yes, I regularly attend church, they asked, how many times a month is that? 62% of those that said they regularly attend church meant twice a month. Their concept of regular was twice a month. We have a generation, actually several generations now, that have trouble spelling one word in particular. It's the word commitment. They can't spell it. I mean, literally they can, but they don't have any concept what it means in their life. Which is why the divorce rate in church is as high or higher than it is in the world. That's incredible. I can't even speak. Why? Because we don't know how to say no. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to sit with uh, a high-ranking, the superintendent of of an area school system. And the biggest problem they were having, what they were asking for help from the church with, was parents who don't know how to say no to their children. Because they believe that a parent's role is to be that child's friend for the child to like them. The Bible never tells us that our children are to like us. To tell us our children are to honor us and respect us. In fact, there's long life that's tied to that. It tells them to honor and respect us. It tells us to love them and them to love us, but this is not about liking them. In fact, the Bible goes further than that. It tells you if you really love your child, you'll discipline them. I can tell you that. God does that with us. It's Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Because God is a father and he loves us, he disciplines us. Discipline, drawing, the word discipline literally means drawing lines right and wrong. I remember one of the times one of our sons wanted to go to, but the younger ones again, wanted to go to a birthday party. And then I discovered, and they were, I think, eight years old. Then I discovered it was all girls. And I said, no, you're not old enough to go do that. And he's upset, crying, mad at me. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So there are ways we've got to put God first, God's Word first, by example to our children. Boy, this is really popular, I can tell. I knew this would be popular. Pastor, teach on Revelation. Teach on... Now, this does not mean neglecting our children. This does not mean I spend... Every moment I have in church, 
And there are people that have done that. There are people that, that, that because they're going to put God first, they spend all their time reading their Bible. They spend all their time listening to the CDs. They spend all their time watching Christian TV. They spend all their time in church whenever the church is open. They spend all their time and they're at the neglect of their family. And they're using God as an excuse for something they don't know how to face at home. I had a stepfather that was a brilliant lawyer, but he was never home. He spent all his time working. And he wasn't working all the time because he was loved at work so much. He spent all the time in the office because he didn't know how to deal with things at home. It confronted issues in his life he did not know how to handle, so he avoided them by extremely working extreme hours. You can do that with religious things. But see, God never requires that. I've told you the story back in the church that I had before, and we lived out in the, way out in the country on a beautiful farm that had, I don't know, 30 acres of land, and I was out one Monday morning, my day off, just praying to God and spending the morning in the sunshine, and just God, I'm feeling so good about myself, I was spending my whole morning praying. Because she's got two little kids, four kids at home, two, two twins, small kids at home, and I'm out fellowshipping with God, the man of God, just... Reveling in what God had done the day before and the night before. Oh God, this is so wonderful to be with you. Oh God. He was setting me up. And on my way back, feeling so good about just having spent the morning out there with God. I'm going to walk in the door and now God speaks. He said, Son, this is not the measure of your spirituality. The measure of your spirituality is what you do when you walk in that door. It's the way you treat your wife, and it's the way you treat your children. And you've spent the morning out here feeling so good about yourself when I wanted you in there helping her. See, true religion is practical. It lives itself out in practical ways. And Isaiah, we just went through a fast. Isaiah says at one place, this is the fast that I require. This is the fast that I require. That you care for the orphaned and the widow. That you minister to people's needs and you do not turn your back on your own flesh. So fasting is, is a good thing to do. It sounds very, oh, I just fasted for almost three days. Oh, I feel so good about myself. God has a great way of humbling us. If we'll let Him. Church, I had before, we had a Sunday evening service, and those were some of the most powerful services. We had the Spirit of God move, healings, dramatic things happening, gifts of the Spirit operating so powerfully. And then we would go out to eat afterwards. And I'm just, oh God, I'm the man of God. God flowed through me today. Oh, it's so wonderful. And now I've got to take these two babies into the bathroom and change them. And God says, this is where it's lived out. This is where it's lived out. So there's a balance to it. But see, if you really are putting God first, He's going to deal with you about what's really important. Because God doesn't want to be first to the hurt of your family. The biggest challenge pastors have that have young families especially is they, they, they spend too much of themselves in the ministry and not enough of themselves with the family. And God never called a pastor or any person of God to sacrifice their family for the ministry. 
because in the, we're not going to have a chance to get to it. But in the order of priority, ministry does not come up there with God. It comes underneath everything else. It's just like anybody else's job in terms of these priorities. And when it gets out of whack, it's because the person wants it out of whack because it's somehow covering something that they don't know how to face in their family. It's not God. It's our own personal issues that get involved. And this happens with family, and it happens with money. Now, what this is talking about in Matthew here is choices that we have to make. And priorities are literally making choices every day, one thing over another. I had another example of this. <clears throat> and, um, where there was a situation with a family member, not somebody here, so I don't want you thinking who it is, where God began to say, you need to talk to them about something. Oh, I've got to move on. You need to talk to them about something. I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a corrective thing. And all our kids are grown and out there, and two of them have their families, and they're mature, they're good people, they're good, they're good you know. And God started dealing with me this. And I said, yeah, but they're, you know, they're grown. And it just wouldn't go away. And then I suddenly realized why I was hesitating. If I, if I deal with this issue with that child that's now an adult, I run the risk of them getting mad at me and not talking to me because they don't need me anymore. And I realized that was a fear growing in me that was stopping me. So I've got to make a choice. Do I, put God, do I obey God in this situation or do I yield to my fear? And the Lord said, if you yield to that fear, you're opening the door to things in your life and that child's life. But if you'll stand for what's right and remind this child for what's right, <clears throat> you'll provide a protection for them. So if you love them, you're willing to lose them. If you love me first, you're willing to obey me, even if it meant they're mad at you and don't talk to you for two years. Well, I did the right thing, and I, I got a wonderful response. I got a thank you for the correction. I want to talk to you about I want to talk to you about, well, there's a, there's a neat example of what this can be like, this, this pull in your heart that's wrong. We're not going to turn there, but it's in Matthew 20. Don't, don't go there, but Matthew 20 is a story of, of James and John, the, the sons of thunder. I love those guys. John wrote the Gospel of John, the three letters of John. Their mom comes to Jesus. Their mom comes. Disciples! I'm in the inner. John's in the inner. He's in the inner, inner, inner. He's not just among the twelve. He's among the closer three. And among the three, there was one even closest, and that's Jesus. John, that's John. This is John's mother. Uh, Master, can I have a word with you? My boys. They're good boys. I know they get a little thunderous sometimes, and sometimes when I call fire down out of heaven, but, but, but they mean well. You know, and, and, and I'm looking past the position they got now. That's great that they're part of your team and they're on your staff. But Lord, I'm looking to the future here. And I know the Scripture says that when you're exalted, there's going to be someone sitting on your right and on your left. Lord, they've been faithful to you. They're good boys. I know I raised them. I just want, want, want would, you, would you let one of them sit on your right and one on your left? Just, you know, please, Lord, promote them over the others. The, the, other, the others, I don't mean anything bad about the others. They're good guys. That was one of them we were concerned about, but the other guys are, they're pretty good, and, you know, I don't mean anything about them, but just, you know, 
But they're my boys. And every mother, every father wants to see their child succeed or promote, but he's, he's taking something into her hands that is none of her business. And Jesus lovingly handles it. says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he turns to them and says, are you willing to take the cup that I've got a drink of? And they say, yes! And he's, he says, you don't know what you're talking about, but you will someday. I want to close with two quick stories. I was going to go to the verses, but I, we've got communion today. I know. I want to go to two quick stories. One is a story of a, of a high priest. One of the immediate descendants of, of Aaron. His name is Eli. And Eli was the high priest. He had two sons. And Eli loved his sons, but he never disciplined them. He never corrected them. And it got so bad that the, his sons were stealing from the offering. It got so bad that his sons, as all well as some of the other priests, were actually having immoral relationships on the doorway of the temple. And God had dealt with him to correct his sons, and he would kind of say, look, you shouldn't be doing it, but he didn't correct them. And so finally God sends a man and says, because you didn't deal with that, I'm going to remove you and they're going to die. It's in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 2. Chapter 3 begins by saying, and, and the young man Samuel had been just brought into the temple because he was Eli's successor as a prophet. The young man comes in, and the, chapter 2 begins with these words. And in Israel at that time, there was no word of the Lord there was no revelation. God was not speaking. And in fact, if you read on, God threatened to remove His presence. The other example is a very different man. His name is Abraham. Abraham was a man that God called out of a pagan society. God called to establish the nation of Israel through him. God spoke to him clearly and said, I'm giving you a son. Abraham was past, was too old, Sarah was too old, and she'd been barren. That's his wife. And God said, I'm going to give you a son. All you've got to do is believe me, and I will give you a child. I will bring life out of you where you're not capable of giving life. And nothing happened for a while, so they kept up a scheme whereby they helped God out by she gave, his, Sarah gave her servant to Abraham to have relationship with, and she did bear a son. And God says, no, 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 no. The only way that son's going to be born is I'm going to create him. You're, gonna, you're not going to. This is a, you're just going to believe my promise. So one of my point is, God made clear to him, I'm giving him to you. And he is the future of what I want to do. Nations are going to come out of him. And the boy's born. He grows up and he's probably in his late teens, early 20s. And in chapter 22, God speaks to Abraham. He says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love and go to the mountain that I'll show you and offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. Can you imagine what must have gone in Abraham's mind? Wait a minute, God's 
promise me that this boy, I mean, I tried to do it, I tried somebody else, and God says, no, it's this boy, and nations are going to come from him, and now he's, that's God, it can't be God. Get behind me, devil. Can you see that these two things collide? They look totally inconsistent. But see, when you're trusting God and you hear His voice, you don't worry out about what does this mean? You just obey. I love it. It says, Abraham got up early the next morning and led his son, the donkeys. He had the wood, the fire, and his servants with, with him. They get three days to the bottom of this mountain. And Abraham says to the servants, you wait here. The lad and I are going to go and worship God and we will come back. He takes the boy up the mountain. The boy asks, okay, I see the wood, I see the fire, but we're missing something. It's the ram or the lamb. And Abraham, this man of faith, says, my son, don't worry. God will provide himself a sacrifice. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. He gets up to the top of the mountain. He ties the boy up. That took faith for the boy to get up there, climb up on the pyre and have him tied up. And Abraham lifts his knife up and begins to come down. And an angel speaks to him. He says, stop. Now I know. Now I know that you truly worship me that you truly reverence me. Now I know the place I have in your heart because you were willing to sacrifice him. That's where the rubber hit the road for Abraham. But let me tell you what comes out of it. He says, because you've done this, in blessing I will bless you. Those are promises he made to Abram back in chapter 12. But the full the full fulfillment of those promises and blessings were not released until Abraham had been tested and put God above the thing he loved the most. Not only was Abraham blessed because of that, and we don't have time to get into it, but because of the covenant, it opened the door so God could now send the true sacrifice that we needed, which was his son. So not only was Abraham blessed, you and I are in the kingdom of God because of his obedience. But say, wow, Abraham was willing to lose his son? No. Hebrews tells us Abraham was so confident in the promise God had made him that even if he had to raise him from the dead, God would have raised him from the dead and given him back. Because he knew God wasn't going to take him away. He just didn't understand how this was, but he was going to trust God for the results. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. What is there in your heart this morning? Close our eyes for a moment. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table together in a minute. Celeb what is there that's in your heart this morning that may have been touched somehow by the Holy Spirit, by what you've heard? Because when you leave here, what that was will begin to fade away. And what the Spirit of God was touching will begin to become more and more distant. And here's what I want us to do. In the, in the quietness of your heart, and I'm going to pray, I want to, I want to take that and I want you to offer it on the altar to Him. That God may be first. And if you're not in a place where you honestly can do that, 
God can work with that. Just say, I'm not ready to do that, but I'm willing for you to work in me so that I will be willing. Father, as we each look in our hearts this morning and trust you, we're asking you, Father, right now to touch in that that area in our heart that maybe you've been talking to us about for some time. Touch that area in our heart, Lord, that we've been keeping from you, that's taken a place that belongs to you. And because we've kept it from you, you can't bless it. And so right now, Father, we put it on the altar. And we put it on the altar for you to give back to us as you choose in whatever form you choose. And we thank you. And we tell you that we trust you. For those of us, Father, that are not ready to do that, we just can't do it honestly. We tell you that we're willing for you to change our heart. We're willing for you to work in our heart and to help us. For God is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. We want to put you first, Lord, so that you can work in our lives that which you want. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.